Hey everyone, this is Becoming a Bible Nerd. I'm Carrie Hunt, and I'm so glad that you are joining us. I believe this ancient Eastern text was never meant to study alone, so we choose to do it in community. We'll take one book a semester, one chapter a week, and really dig in to understand the context and culture that the book was written in so that we can better understand how to apply what God was saying to our lives. Our goal is to equip you and your community to fall more in love with Jesus because you have fallen in love with his word. This season, we are going through the book of Romans, and today's episode is Romans chapter 9, Israel's Rejection of Christ. So, one thing that I was thinking is, if we get through this book, we make it to the end, and we haven't picked up that it really has absolutely nothing to do with us, and everything to do with God's righteousness um, through faith, um, not by works, but there should be signs of works, then we have just completely missed what Paul was trying to say. He does a really good job of saying things over and over again. And today we're going to talk a little bit about Israel. This is a national passage written to his people because overall, not obviously not individually because Paul is Jewish and he, if you study through Acts, you see in his missionary journeys, he's always returning back to Jerusalem at certain times of the year. Well, what was he doing? He was going back to the temple to celebrate in the high holy days, in the feasts that were ordained by God in the Old Testament. So he is still 100% Jewish, believing in the Jewish Messiah, but overall Israel rejected God. So again, I want us to enter into this chapter knowing that this is a national passage. It is speaking to the nation of Israel. It's really about God's sovereignty because, well, we're going to dig into that today. So at the very beginning, we are following this beautiful writing that Paul left us with in the previous chapter. In my Bible, it's called The Believer's Triumph, but it's full of verses that we've memorized over the years. And it's, um, you know, who who can separate us from the love of God? And then he goes into this beautiful, can anguish or affliction or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. Um, He goes into, we are more than conquerors. And there's nothing that basically can separate us. It's a beautiful, beautiful segment. And then immediately he goes into this segment. Because remember, he wasn't writing in chapters. This was just the next section that followed his thoughts. Um, And this next section was filled with intense sorrow, um, anguish in his heart over the state of his people. He um, is brokenhearted because he sees that his people are spiritually blind and they're going to be separated from the love of Christ, this love that is so extravagant and nothing can stop. Paul goes on to say that he would even forsake his own salvation if it would save his brothers. Now, this would have reminded every reader of Moses when Israel built that calf of gold. Moses comes down from the mountain and says, if you will forgive their sin, But if not, I pray, blot me out of your books. It's really this unconditional, true love that Moses and Paul here displays for God's people. Why did they have that? How did they have that? Because they were connected to God. They spent time with him and God began placing his desires in their heart. We get that from Psalms that um, he'll give you the desires of your heart. Well, basically, that means he's giving you his desires so that you can carry him out on earth. 
Well, then Paul goes on to list all of the advantages, the national benefits of being an Israelite, um, that they have received adoption. Um, they experienced the glory of God. They had the covenant. They were the ones that the law was given to and the temple services. And they're the ones that carry the promise, the promise from God to Abraham. And they have the ancestors. The ancestors are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So this cuts even deeper because they had all of these special privileges and every chance in the world to accept and recognize God's plan for salvation. The Israelites trusted that their salvation came through being an Israelite. They thought they were good. They were born with a certain nationality, so they were in right standing with God. That's how they saw it. So Paul is correcting this wrong thinking. Jews are not justified simply because they are Jewish. In fact, in the Zondervan Illustrated Bible Background Commentary, if that's not a mouthful, it says this. His key point is that God never promised salvation to every individual Jew. Paul demonstrates God's own sovereign act of calling um, was brought to the... Let me start over. Paul demonstrates God's own sovereign act of calling was brought... It is early in the morning, and my tongue keeps saying words that are not there. I apologize. And if I knew how to edit this, I would edit it out. Uh, Paul demonstrates God's own sovereign act of calling was what brought the Jews to salvation. They needed to be called. Paul is responding to the popular Jewish view of election, which held that God's covenant with Abraham renewed through Moses guaranteed salvation to every Jew who did not separate himself Um, To him, from Israel, Paul's response to quote the phrase of N.T. Wright is that what counts is grace, not race. So basically, Paul is addressing the fact that, hey, you're not right in right standing with God because you're Jewish. You only are in right standing with God through salvation through Christ alone. And that is by faith, not by works. So then he goes on to explain that not all who are born from Abraham are truly God's people. And he uses some of the descendants. So he starts with Isaac. Isaac was the child from Abraham. Abraham had many sons. and Many sons had father Abraham. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, but he Abraham did have many sons. But Isaac was the one that was born with the spiritual promises. He was not the firstborn. But he was the son that God chose to carry the spiritual promises. Now, the rest of his sons were blessed just because Abraham was blessed. But it was through Isaac that a nation would be birthed and that nation would be God's people. And then he goes on to the next patriarch, which was Isaac's son, Jacob. Jacob was a twin and he was the younger of the two twins. But we see once again that God's choice was the younger son. And that showed that God's blessings are his to hand out and not an automatic birthright. The promise would go through Jacob. And this passage was a little bit difficult. I'm not going to lie. Whenever I started reading this, I I, I told God, I was like, I'm not going to teach this chapter. I'm just going to say, sorry. I'm not teaching this chapter because I don't understand how it says that you love Jacob and you hated Esau and you 
hardened Pharaoh's heart. And I don't want to teach something that I don't understand because I don't want to misrepresent you. Well, through the week, through lots of reading, I did land on some comfortable thoughts. Now, remember, this is commentary from man. This isn't God saying who he is. This is who very scholarly, brilliant men who have spent their a lifetime studying scripture. This is what they are saying. And I, um, it helped me tremendously. So the first thing is that this the Zondervan Illustrated Bible Background Commentary reminded us that this is a national passage. So when it says, Jacob I have loved, Esau I had hated, it is talking about two nations. He's his fondness and his choice that Israel would be his chosen people is showing his love. And Esau ended up selling his birthright for a stew. It wasn't important to him. So then he goes off to a land that his ancestors were clearly warned to stay away from. And he married and he began a nation and it was the Edomites. And the Edomites were a thorn in Israel's side. They did so many things to come up against them. And so God had not chosen the Edomites because the Edomites had not chosen to follow him. Another um, scholar, Ray Steadman, said this um, about God hating Esau, that this is not an emotion, but a Hebrew idiom often used to express less preferred. Esau was not the object of God's electing purpose. So it wasn't a hate like we think, like I hate anchovies or something that you despise with all disdain. It was just simply an idiom stating that the Edomites were less preferred and they were not the object of God's elected purposes. So then he goes on and mentions Pharaoh. Now, Pharaoh was the ruler of Egypt when it was time for God to bring his children back to the promised land. Remember that um, Joseph brought, um, he ended up in Egypt through his brother selling him, and then there was a famine. He worked his way up into the, the ranks of the Egyptian empire, and there was a famine, so his brothers come down to Egypt to get food, and they were so blessed that they were able to move their entire clan down to Egypt, and the Pharaoh, they had favor with the Pharaoh, and the Pharaoh was so so filled with gratitude for what Joseph had done for their nation that he gave Joseph's brothers the best of the land. They lived in Goshen, which was the most fertile, the best part of Egypt. And and so I remember as a kid thinking, this is so weird because he loved them so much. And then all of a sudden he had this change of heart. Well, no, he didn't have a change of heart. What happened was there was a change of dynasty. Um, you know, with the pharaohs, that was something in the ancient world passed down um, through your family lineage. And a whole different people group came in over through the, mon the uh, I don't know if it would be monarchy, but whatever was set up. And... It was a whole different ruling family that hated the Israelites. So this Pharaoh, it said 14 times in the book of Exodus from chapters 4 to 14 that his heart was hardened. Um, he thought that he was the epitome of Ra, the sun god, and he didn't need the God of Israel. He believed in his heart. He was the greatest of all gods. He thought he was a god. And so he chose to harden, really, or he hardened his own heart. 
And then God used that to accomplish his will by continuing to make sure heart Pharaoh kept his heart hardened so that he could display all of these signs and wonders through the plagues. And the plagues are interesting if you study them because they really are designed to show which God is more powerful. This, was a, this wasn't just random plagues that were sent, but they were a message that the God of Israel is the God of all. He is the most high, and he was more powerful than Ra or any of the other Egyptian gods. So then he goes on to assume that they're going to ask certain questions. And Paul is addressing the issue, should we question God? Um, In fact, he says at one point, should the thing that was created say to the one who created it, and then say these questions. And this reminds me of a passage in Job. You know that Job was just... A child of God, God had all faith that no matter what would come his way, that he would still follow God. And God allowed the adversary to go and tempt him. It was a horrific, horrific temptation. And while Job stayed steady, he did have some questions. And he did maybe throw a little temper tantrum. And, you know, that makes me feel normal. And I'm thankful for that. But there's this place in Job, Job 38, where God lets him talk for a while. And he's just quiet. And then he speaks and he says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? And then he goes into this amazing part of scripture where he just lets Job know that I am the creator God and you are just mere man. But I think that that one statement just shakes me to my core. Oh, excuse me. Where were you when I was laying the foundations of the earth? God is sovereign. That's the message of this, that God is sovereign. His plans are love and good. So even when we do not understand them and they seem unfair, they seem painful, they seem bad, that is the complete opposite of truly what they are. He is sovereign. His entire work has been to redeem mankind and he was willing to sacrifice his son to do that and he did it all he did it all and it's complete and all of his decisions are good and right i know that i have talked to y'all before in previous podcasts that i when i was 24 my mom was diagnosed with cancer i'd just gotten back from bible school and I went to a charismatic Bible school and my faith was high and I knew that God had the power to heal her. I knew her. I mean, I knew it. There was no doubt God was going to heal her. And this was just so amazing that God was going to display his love to our family like this. And she died. And the night, the night that she died earlier that night, I remember my family surrounding me and saying, you have to, to let her go. And I didn't like that. I didn't like that. I had to say that. And I did just because I felt the pressure because I didn't, she couldn't go. I needed her to fight. But um, in all reality, she was 80 pounds. I mean, she, it was amazing. It was a miracle. And it was just because I wouldn't let her go that she was hanging on and fighting. So I let her, you know, I, I told her that she could go and she died that night. Um, I, I can remember going to my room before she died though, and just being so mad at God. And in that moment, God spoke loud and clear that he was sovereign. I didn't even know what that meant. I had to look it up and really ponder that for quite some time after her death, but it was one of those moments where you're just shook to your core and 
I don't know how to explain other than when I heard that voice say he was sovereign, I knew he was sovereign. There was no arguing that. So then Paul goes on to quote some Old Testament prophets. He starts with Hosea. Remember, Hosea was the prophet that was led by God to marry Gomer, who was a prostitute, and she would leave him and come back and leave and come back and leave and come back. And this was a picture of how Israel was with God. And God told the prophet to name one of his children, Lo Ami, meaning you are not my people. This was um, a time of judgment because because God's people were being a prostitute. They were selling themselves to the pagan nations and worshiping their gods. Well, this whole passage is to remind the audience that Gentiles, for one, are being called into the family, but also a reminder that Israel... Um, it was a reminder to Israel that judgment would not last forever and it would one day be restored. It was to give that church hope that their ancestors would one day be reunited with God and there would be a softening of their hearts. He goes on then to quote from Isaiah. And this this passage was originally spoken to God's people during the Assyrian destruction. They thought that they would be wiped out, but God saved a remnant. He showed his mercy by saving a remnant. And just like in Paul's day, there was a believing remnant in the church. And then um, he goes on to say that the Gentiles found righteousness even when they weren't looking for it. And that Israel's, the Israelites had worked so hard for righteousness and they didn't find it. The whole lesson in all of this, these passages are, um, or is this, that to pursue the righteousness of faith. He wanted all of the people to hear this, that we needed to pursue the righteousness of faith, not the law of righteousness. The law of righteousness will always leave us short. The righteousness of faith allows God to come in. It's giving God permission to come in and write his law now on our hearts and our minds and to transform us into him. It's the, through the power of the Holy Spirit that, oh, we can walk this out. And guess what? There's good news. On the days that we don't walk it out, we have this self-control. We have this conviction that's inside of us that makes us get up. We turn to God. We confess our sins. We turn and go back into the right direction instead of the wrong direction. And we continue our journey. This um, Then to close, he gives the analogy of a race. And in this, it's a picture of Israel running hard and fast, obeying the law in their own might, all the while feeling pretty proud of themselves and looking down at the surrounding pagan Gentile nations. But then all of a sudden, the Gentiles are the ones that actually finish the race and claim the prize through faith. Why is this? Because the Jews stumbled over Christ. They've missed it completely. And all the while, Gentiles were invited to come into the race. And even though they started um, from, oh, uh, they, they, let me go back to my notes because I'm, they, they had a disadvantage. They started with a disadvantage. They started late in the game, but they actually were finishing the race because of the faith that they had in Christ. And so he, Paul is 
just crying out to his people, don't let Christ be a stumbling block. It is through him, it is by him that we receive salvation. Okay, so that is the end of chapter 9. We are moving on to chapter 10. He's continuing talking to the Jews, and he's going to teach them in this next section that it's righteousness by faith alone. I'll see you next week. Happy reading. And I do want to say, if you want to donate to this um, organization, there are um, things that we are already working out for 2023 that would help us. And you can go to becomingabiblenerd.com and click on the giving tab, and then you can choose your way to give. And we appreciate all the people that are giving regularly because you are... (laughs) You are um, helping us continue this ministry, and um, I love just seeing and hearing from you and hearing the testimony of how God has transformed your life simply because you are in His Word and you are coming to know Him more intimately. So keep those stories coming. We love them. We love you guys. We'll see you later. Happy reading.